This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the Office of Personnel Management Director is marking one year in office. She joins us to reflect on the changes the agency has made since she took charge and her top priorities for next year. And when insurrectionists stormed the Capitol on January 6th, it was a team of federal employees who worked to get the building back into shape. We'll bring you inside that effort. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. It's been one year since Kiran Ahuja took the top post at the Office of Personnel Management. In her role, she oversees the management of more than 2 million federal civilian employees. Director Ahuja, welcome to the program. Thank and you. happy anniversary. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it, it was just the day after you were sworn in when uh, President Biden issued his executive order on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. Um, tell me about the progress that you've made on that implementation. Absolutely. It's an important endeavor on our end as, as an agency that has a leadership role um, in this effort. And we feel very fortunate that the president has charged uh, OPM as well as uh, a number of other agencies to uh, really look uh, long and hard at our various practices within the federal government. I would say that, you know, we know this is a best practice when it comes to really a best business practice when it comes to uh, emphasizing diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. So for the past number of months, and really recently back in March, uh, agencies released their strategic plans. Uh, they sent those over to OPM. We've been doing a number of like technical assistance reviews and, and really looking up and uh, looking through to kind of uh, find those best practices. So, you know, a big part or, or chunk of this past year has been spending time within their agencies talking about the different ways that they need to um, embrace diversity, equity, inclusion. But you know what critics will say mm -hmm. is, you know, the federal government, as with any employer, mm -hmm. should just hire the most qualified person right. without worrying about gender or race or disability or whatever. Well, I mean, I will say that within this executive order, it's a very broad definition of what we're talking about when it when it comes to diversity. Yes, it is related to race and ethnicity, but we're talking about veterans. We're talking about individuals living in rural parts of our country. We're talking about those living with disabilities. I mean, it's a very broad sense of what we mean about diversity, and that is because as a government, we can only serve our country um, in the best way possible by having individuals who come from these vast and varied experiences. And so, you know, we've taken this past year to really do the work inside the agencies to understand how are we looking at hiring? How are we looking at promotions? How are we supporting individuals on training and development? Is that happening in an equitable fashion um, in our agencies? Speaking of hiring, you mm -hmm. released several hiring authorities over mm -hmm. the last year. Talk about um, what they are and how they've impacted recruitment and retention. Absolutely. Well, you know, we've been oh, very busy on the on the policy side of things. And, you know, a couple of hiring authorities that we've been really excited about that I think we want to continue to work on are those focused on early career talent. We've 
you know, provided to authorities that make it uh, a lot easier to bring in individuals in, uh, as post-secondary students, as well as those uh, uh, who are recent graduates. Uh, we're in the midst of revamping the Pathways program, and we are going to be reissuing or issuing uh, regulations to, to make some changes to the Pathways program. And that's been really the signature internship program in the federal government. Uh, it hasn't had sort of a refresh in about 10 years, and there have been some challenges, quite honestly, and, and some of the hurdles that agencies have not been able to overcome or, or the sense that it hasn't been as easy to utilize. So we've been getting a lot of that feedback, so that's a big part of what's coming. But these two hiring authorities focus on post-secondary and recent graduates has been very helpful for agencies to, to do the recruiting on site, to identify students, uh, and also to actually expand uh, the pay. So in many, in many instances, uh, you can pay a student or a grad up to 72,000 GS11, you know, part-time, full-time. I mean, it's a great way to yeah, work new. your way through college, you know? <laughs> but there's also the issue of um, hiring high-tech workers mm -hmm. into the federal government mm -hmm. and really competing with those high-tech companies mm -hmm. that can pay a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, we've had um, on the books uh, you know, ways for agencies to bring in uh, IT cyber professionals uh, through a direct hire authority. Uh, in, in addition to that, we are doing a lot of work focused on cyber talent. That is kind of what's to come. We've been doing a lot of internal planning on, you know, potential regulations and, and legislation that we'd want to propose. And um, this is a work we're doing. We're trying to figure out both Mimi kind of on the high end of like these specialized skills where we know we need to compete and we need to recruit in a way that we can bring folks in, as well as on the end of early bringing in early career talent. We focus on skills-based hiring, which is another way to expand opportunities as well as in such a competitive market, we actually need to make sure that we're pulling in the individuals have the set of skills and not necessarily defined by, did you do a four, you know, engage, get a four-year degree or a two-year degree, how is that commiserate with the job that you're applying for in government? You know, at the beginning of the year, uh, OPM raised the minimum wage to $15 yes. an hour mm -hmm. for federal employees. Mm -hmm. Re what results have you seen? What feedback have you gotten on that? Well, you know, this is a big part of what we've been trying to do this past year is set the federal government up as a model employer. So, and this is one way to do it. The $15 minimum wage impacted, you know, more than 70,000 federal employees in literally every county in this country. It's a floor. It's a, in many ways, if we talk about what it takes to uh, create a living wage or set a living wage, that was very important to us. I will say what we announced yesterday, focused on wildland firefighters, was key. It was a building block. Many of those firefighters got the benefits of the minimum wage, and we took it another step further. And these are federal firefighters yes. who fight wildfires, and you know that season is upon us. Yes, absolutely. Were they not being paid very well? Is what? Why did that come about? It's been a real challenge. You know, the the pay was not competitive compared to their state counterparts. Let's say in California or in the West, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, and so it was very challenging to retain them. These are very hard jobs. The jobs have shifted from being seasonal to, you know, kind of fire seasons to fire years. So we just had to look really carefully uh, at how the job has changed and really make the job series much more commensurate 
with, uh, with the current realities. And, you know, we're all battling uh, kind of what we see um, in our environment right now with the, the effects of climate change and certainly the fire season, now fire years, is, is, is upon us. And so what we, and this was a particular uh, bump in pay through the bipartisan infrastructure law. So the president fought and secured 600 million for firefighters. We have used that to provide supplemental pay and back pay through October of 2021, but it's a temporary fix. So we're gonna be looking to work with our partners on the Hill uh, to make this a permanent fix. All right, quick pause here yeah. and then we'll continue mm -hmm. our conversation. Coming next on Government Matters, I'll continue the conversation with the Director of Office of Personnel Management, Kieran Ahuja. Stay with us. I'm back now with the director of the Office of Personnel Management, Kieran Ahuja. Director Ahuja, we were talking about um, the minimum wage being raised to $15 an hour at the beginning of the year, but that doesn't buy what it used to, given the high inflation rate. So are you considering further pay raises, further increases to offset that? Exactly. You know, I when I mentioned the $15 minimum wage, uh, you know, really, we see that as a floor. We wanted to make sure and determine that we didn't have any individuals in the federal government who were making below that. And like I said, we had about 70,000 who, who got that pay raise. But we know that that's, that's certainly not enough. We've had successive pay uh, increases for federal workers uh, since uh, the president's been in office. It's been a focus for us. Uh, for, 20, for FY 2023, we've proposed 4.6%. And that's is, the cost of living increase. So is that uh, across the board? That's across the board. That's across the board. There, uh, again, there'll be locality pay uh, differentials. Uh, I, my understanding is our uh, Hill colleagues, uh, the Democrats uh, in the House, have proposed 5.1%. So I think there's an acknowledgement here, probably even proceeding where we're starting to see kind of the effects of inflation, that we do have to play a little bit of a catch up with federal government salaries. Uh, you know, whether we're talking about compression on the high end or we're talking about the fact that we want to have the, the floor as a $15 minimum wage. You know, uh, the bipartisan infrastructure law is going to require agencies to really ramp up mm -hmm. hiring to um, address all of those mm -hmm. new projects that, mm -hmm. that they're responsible for. Tell us what you're doing to support that. Absolutely. So when this historic law was passed, this historic investment. It involved a number of critical agencies, Department of Transportation, Department of Energy, who have to do tremendous work around the country if we're talking about rebuilding roads and bridges and airports and ports. And then the timelines were <laughs> incredibly tight. So we had a lot of these agencies coming to OPM, a little bit with their hair on fire of like, oh my goodness, how are we gonna meet these timelines and the people that we need? So at OPM, we've done something that I actually want to replicate as we go forward. A real, you know, again, really repositioning OPM as a strategic partner. And we set up tiger teams to go into these agencies. Um, and we've had a very comprehensive effort with all these agencies working on their strategic workforce planning. Uh, we created a talent surge playbook. We have a talent dashboard where we're watching metrics of how positions are getting posted, um, what's the time to hire. Uh, we've been using government-wide uh, what we call certs or sort of certificates, which is like you can share applicants 
off the cert from one agency to another. How novel, right? You, can, you don't have to like apply for every single job that gets posted. You post, let's say, for grant managers, and you want to fill them in multiple agencies or HR specialists. So these are the things that we've been trying out and getting agencies comfortable with doing those uh, really best practices and, and things and what we'd like to see in a more kind of broader scale going forward. You brought back the Presidential Rank Awards. Yes. What are they and why was it important for you to bring them back? We did bring them back. They had been uh, on a bit of hiatus in the past administration. They're a great way to recognize the incredible work of our executives in the federal government. It is the, the most prestigious award that an executive can get in the federal government. It is very competitive. OPM manages that uh, award program and it's something that's been around for a very, very long time. Uh, the president earlier this year uh, did a program with the Presidential Rank Awards for uh, for the past year and, and it goes a long way. I mean, this is a big part and when I think about maybe my, my past year, a big part of it has been recognizing federal employees, the value that they bring to the work, the, the commitment that they make, their commitment to the mission of, of their agencies and, and we want to make sure that those good people stay in their jobs, they feel that they're being valued, that they see a pathway through uh, their own career and into higher leadership roles. And we also want to also attract those who have not thought about government. And, and you're yeah. right, they, they work incredibly hard yeah. and they're unsung heroes yes, um, to the American people. Absolutely. Well, looking back at this uh, past year, tell me what was your proudest moment? Goodness, you know, I think my proudest moment has been like the work that we've uh, we've done internally inside the agency. You know, I came into an agency that was fairly broken from, uh, you know, being on the precipice of, of dissolution. And uh, it is the only place that I wanted to be in the federal government. I have uh, a great uh, uh, affinity and uh, just, you know, the calling of public service, of civil service, is, is, is so meaningful. And these individuals who, you know, a big part of what they do is to ensure that the people in, in our agencies are supported. We say people are our greatest and our biggest assets. And so for me, being able to rebuild this agency, to provide solid leadership, what's unfortunate about my anniversary is that I'm the longest serving director since 2015. Uh, so, you know, we haven't had one serve They've for been a full under year. Under a year? Yes. And so that's not an accomplishment. I am not bragging about that at all. <laughs> but I think, you know, again, it speaks to the importance when we talk about who's in our institutions uh, and the leadership. The leadership piece is so incredibly important. And for me, it means it, it, I, I take a great deal of pride I'm an interest in making sure that our workforce feels supported and that we have the right people in the right seats. So all this other stuff we've been talking about is is amazing, and we've been able to do it. But and I, we're glad that you're yes, there in I know. that seat. Thank you. And thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Coming up on Government Matters on January 6th, rioters smashed windows, defaced statues, and destroyed offices. I'll talk to one of the team leaders who put the Capitol back together. We'll be right back. In the days following the attack on the Capitol, a team of government employees worked tirelessly to pick up the pieces and bring order back to the iconic symbol 
of American democracy. One of the leaders of that effort was Jim Kaufman. He's director of Capitol Grounds and Arboretum at the Architect of the Capitol. He's also a finalist for a Service to America medal. Jim, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. You weren't actually at the Capitol on January 6th, but when you saw it unfold on TV, what were your initial thoughts? What were the emotions that you experienced? Uh, I think first off, I'm looking at it on TV and I'm thinking it can't be happening. Uh, that I, I didn't quite uh, want to believe what I was seeing. And then uh, reality quickly set in and we understood what was going on. So uh, I was able to communicate very quickly uh, with a few folks that we did have uh, on some of our uh, satellite areas right right off of Capitol Square. So you helped lead the effort to put the building back together and the grounds. The first thing was to assess the damage. How extensive was it when you arrived that next morning? Well, I think the the important part to, to remember is that as part of the AOC, uh, we take care of everything. We're the, the facility manager for the uh, the buildings and the grounds. And my particular jurisdiction is the grounds. And uh, I came on site that morning of January 7th, uh, well before daybreak to start walking the site to assess what was going on outside, uh, evaluate the uh, ability for our crews to safely maneuver around and figure out what we needed to be able to help restore the grounds and start setting some sense of normalcy uh, for the people that both come to the Capitol and the people that view the Capitol. And what did you see as you walked around and, and started assessing? Was it worse than you were expecting? Definitely worse than I was expecting. Uh, the, uh, our group is very accustomed to cleaning up after multiple demonstrations, First Amendment activities, uh, concerts, celebrations, all sorts of stuff. Uh, we were never accustomed to uh, being able to restore the grounds and follow details that were so impacted, such as keeping in mind very, very simple safety protocols at the time dealing with COVID and all employees maintaining separation and wearing their face coverings uh, to the proper way to what to look for, for uh, anything that could be suspicious or a weapon, anything that needed special cleanup, be it uh, uh, bodily fluid, be it uh, chemicals. And we had to assess all that be able to talk to our crews to make sure that they were in a good frame of mind and understood everything that they were getting into, considering that our folks were coming to a place where we put our all, all of our, our efforts into our pride and joy of our work and seeing it uh, destroyed and we had to clean it up. And we had a good crew and it was the crew that really pulled together to make things work. And, and Jim, you were working against a very tight deadline because the presidential inauguration was two weeks away. So what did you need to do to finish restoring and getting the grounds up and ready uh, in just two weeks? 
the it's a tight deadline and the AOC that all of us here at the architect of the Capitol, uh, no matter where we work, we deal with dead deadlines all the time. And we have incredible people that make it happen. So there's no doubt that we were going to make that deadline to get the uh, presidential inauguration to happen. That's what we do. That's our mission. And so what what how many people were involved? How many hours was it? I mean, I know you you met the deadline, but what did you have to do to get there? Uh, keep in mind safety and employee mental health, I think, was our biggest priority. We had uh, roughly, we're still dealing with COVID at that time and trying to keep crews separated. So we had probably at least half to three quarters of our employees in. So roughly say 35 to 40 people for the grounds uh, crew, Capitol Grounds and Arboretum, just taking care of the outside. And we very strategically were able to work with our teams in various sections uh, to be able to keep them separate, but also not really work excessive hours. We were very careful with that because you could just see it in all of our faces, in, in our eyes. Uh, it, it was very traumatic and very tiring, mentally exhausting for people. Uh, so we were able to just chip away at it day after day. And we got it done. Uh, and the further we moved into it, the more details we got into. Uh, but we certainly were able to pull together uh, both inside and outside the, the AOC crews. Jim, I, I wonder stuff. what the work that you did in the aftermath of that attack mean to you personally? Personally, uh, it's something that I can say uh, I had an impact on the Capitol, uh, and I was able to work with a fantastic crew that left a fantastic impression on the Capitol to return it to a sense of normalcy that, that is deserved. All right, well, Jim, I appreciate your, your work on that, and um, thank you so much for being on the program. All right, thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor. Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated 
network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.